0: Please turn with me in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 33. We'll be looking at the whole chapter today. The older I get, the more I tend to like closure. I like that feeling of completion. Uh, It can also be exciting to start things. I, I do like to start new things. But the problem is that most of our lives are lived in the middle, neither starting nor finishing, just moving on, continuing. Kids, you remember, even those who are homeschooled, uh, remember the the excitement of first grade, you know, like we're going to start school, we're going to do this excitement of that. And most young people, uh, as you move into adulthood, can still remember the excitement of graduation from high school. But how many of us really get excited about middle school? (laughs) Being in the middle is kind of the hardest place to be. And for the last 20 years, Jacob has been living in the middle. But he's coming to a point of closure. It's not his final point of closure. It's not the the end. He has much more life to live. But he has come to an important point the end of an important chapter in his life. How are we going to define this chapter that is coming to an end in Jacob's life? How did it begin? How do we know that it's now being completed? Well, unlike most of the moments of our closure, there are usually times where we've uh, began some task and we have come to the completion of that task. And so it's an accomplishment that we have done. But the period in Jacob's life is not really about his accomplishment. He's not graduating from years of schooling. It's not been some big achievement that he's finally finished. The closure of this chapter is not something about Jacob as much as it is about the promise that God has kept to Jacob. Twenty years earlier, when Jacob was running away from Esau, God met Jacob and gave to him a promise. At that time, God commits himself to Jacob to bring him back to the promised land, back to his home. And I really want to take a moment and just read that promise to you in Genesis 28. You don't have to turn back there. Just listen verses 12 through 15. And Jacob dreamed. And behold, there was a ladder set up on the earth. And the top of it reached heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, the God of your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I promised you. Now it's this moment, this moment of promise that marks the beginning of this journey of Jacob, that last 20 years. God had said, I will bring you back to this very land. I will not leave you until I have completed the task of bringing you back here. I will do what I have promised. God also promises to make Jacob numerous. And as numerous as the dust of the earth. And God promises that in Jacob and in his offspring, all of the nations of the earth will be blessed. Very specific promises. Jacob wakes up from his dream. He is full of excitement and fear. He understands the significance of this moment. This is the a new beginning for him and he's all excited about it. In verse 16 he reads, Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is this place! This is none other than the house of God and this is the gate of heaven. So early in the morning Jacob took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He came to He called the name of the place Bethel, but the name of the city was loose at first. Then Jacob made a vow, if God will be with me and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to my father's house in peace, then the Lord shall be my God. And this stone which I have set up for a pillar shall be God's house. And of all that you give me, I will give a full tenth to you. You see, at this moment, at this beginning moment in chapter 28, Jacob recognizes how important this is. He makes this vow to God. If God will do this, if he will bring me back to my father's house in peace, then... The Lord shall be my God. Jacob's not bartering with God. He's not trying to twist God's arm to bend God to his will. God initiated the promise. God said he would do these things. But Jacob is saying, if God will be faithful to complete this promise then Jacob will never again see God the same. Not only will God be the God of creation, not only will he be the almighty God and the sustainer of all life, not only will he be the God of Jacob's parents or his grandparents, from that point on, Jacob will consider God to be my God. Then the Lord will, shall be my God. If you consider the relationship between Jacob and God from God's perspective, the Lord had been Jacob's God from even before the time Jacob was born. Yahweh had been loving Jacob when he was in the womb of his mom. But God is never content for his relationship with you to be a one-way street. God wants you to embrace him in the same way that he has embraced you. You see, God is bringing all of his children to declare, the Lord is my God. Now, it is God's promise to bring Jacob back and Jacob's vow to personally bind himself to God as his own that marks this entire period in Jacob's life. From chapter 28 all the way to chapter 33, this is one period in his life. Jacob is on the verge of returning to the promised land. Once he crosses over the river Jordan... The promise of God to bring him back will have been accomplished. It will have been fulfilled. Closure would have occurred. And then you would, we would want to see, will Jacob actually keep his vow? So if we want to understand chapter three, 33 correctly, and I think there's a lot of things in chapter 33 that you're just kind of like, okay, what, what is going on here? Hopefully that will become more clear. But if you want to understand chapter 33 correctly, you have to understand that God has brought Jacob 98% of the way back to his home, but he's still got 2% to go. There's a there's a hymn, one of my favorites. I only have a few favorites, right? It's called, All the Way My Savior Leads Me. All the way. And I... You know, I, I miss having young kids. I'm glad I have a grandchild. But I used to, every time we would pull out that, that hymn, I'd say, most of the way, my Savior leads me. And I used to love the kids every time. say, no, Dad, it's all the way, it's all the way. And, uh, and I would say, I hope that you remember that. Because there's plenty of times when you will wonder if God is going to take you all the way. Well, here we are, as I have a little friend there, stink bug, come up on the stage. Sorry, I didn't mean to push him to you. Sorry. <laughs> That's the question will God be faithful to his promise to bring Jacob all the way to the point of closure? And and when you understand that, you understand that in this chapter, there are obstacles. Right here at the end, there are obstacles that, that threaten to keep Jacob from going all the way in. And that's really what's going on in this passage, So let's begin. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4, talk about it, or read some more. Just, you know, kind of walk through instead of reading the passage in its entirety at the beginning. Chapter 33, 1 through 4. And Jacob lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, Esau was coming, and 400 men with him. So he divided the children among Leah and Rachel... And the two female servants, and he put the servants with their children in front, then Leah with her children, and Rachel and Joseph last of all. He, set, he himself went on before them, bowing himself to the ground seven times until he came near his brother. But Esau ran to meet him, and embraced him, and fell on his neck, and kissed him, and they wept. The first of the final obstacles that Jacob meets is Esau himself. There is still the question of whether or not Esau will try to prevent Jacob from returning to the land, even to kill him. Now you have to understand that Jacob is the one who initiated this encounter. He could have tried to slip back into the land without Esau knowing But I think he knew that eventually Esau would find out. He knows that he must face Esau. In fact, part of the promise in God bringing him back into the land is that he will be brought back into the land in peace. And that means he won't be at war with Esau. And here is the time of which he must face him. And even though that Jacob the night before had wrestled with God and won and he had some assurance that God would continue to bless him in this confrontation with Esau, the, the anxiety of his heart is still there. Text tells us that. Jacob divides his family. Rachel and Joseph are getting the, given the highest priority, then Leah and her children, and then the maidservants and their children. And at this point in the text, this is really a way of, of the writer to point you forward to future situations. It, this, this is not so important here. It is a form of favoritism. Jacob is clearly favoring Joseph and um, Rachel, but it's not, a, not a, a very important part in this text, but you, you just go, wait a minute, is that good? And you will know that when we get to the story of Joseph, it will be this favoritism that will be the foundation of that story. So just kind of throwing that in there to prepare you for that. To Jacob's credit, he goes in front of them all. So instead of being behind them like he was with the gift, he is now in front of all of his family. So he is acting as the protector of his entire family. That's great. In other words, he's saying, Esau, you don't have a right to my family. He's given him a gift, but you don't have a right to my family. I will stand to protect them. But as he approaches Esau, he bows down to the ground seven times. And this bowing down shows Jacob's humility before Esau. And I find this rather amazing because in the very promise of God to uh, Jacob, it was that Esau would bow down to him. So you have to ask the question, is this is this you know what's going on here? is Jacob like denying the promise that he is going to be the Lord in this situation? I don't think so. It's clear that it's not just um it's not just politeness that would have required one bow, but to give seven times of bowing to the ground is clearly a sign of servanthood i I've been trained to always. Think of how things parallel to Christ. Is this not a similar attitude of what we see in Christ? Is not Jesus Christ Lord over all? Is he not God himself? Will not all of his people bow down to him? And yet in Philippians 2, we see that he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but took the nature of a servant. Humbling Himself. And are we not to emulate Christ's attitude through our lives? In some ways, I see Jacob as, as giving us a wonderful model here. Don't care about who's above or below. Consider others more important than yourselves. You are God's children. You are kings and queens in his kingdom. But that doesn't mean anything except that you should be the servant of all. Oh, that Joseph would have learned that when he got the dream that his brothers would bow down to him, and he goes to them and says, hey, you guys are all going to bow down to me. His attitude was clearly not right at that moment. And so one brief application in this text, do you know that you're royalty, but do you use the fact that you belong to Jesus as an opportunity to serve rather than to be served? But even with Jacob's humility, we are shocked by Esau's response. Are we not? I mean, this response is on the part of the prodigal son and his dad. I mean, this is like, whoa, I didn't expect that from Esau. <clears throat> Nothing less than the working of God's spirit in the heart of Esau could accomplish this. That is not to say that Esau is redeemed, it's just to say that God has has uh, removed this attitude of animosity that was in Esau beforehand. This is a good thing. These are powerful displays of affection. They are not just outward shows. This is not Laban we're dealing with. This is this is something powerful here, and in this case, it is the the beauty of this reconciliation that actually becomes the next obstacle. Let's read verses 5 through 11. And when Esau lifted up his eyes and saw the women and the children, and he said, Who are these with you? Jacob said, The children whom God has graciously given your servant. Then the servants drew near, they and their children, and bowed down. Leah likewise and her children drew near and bowed down. And last, Joseph and Rachel drew near and bowed down. Esau said, what do you mean by all this company that I met? Now he's, he's asking about those who have come prior, right? All the gifts that he gave. And then Jacob sa- answered, to find favor in the sight of my Lord. But Esau said, I have enough, my brother. Keep what you have for yourself. Jacob said, no, no, no please. If I have found favor in your sight... Then accept my present from my hand for I have seen your face which is like seeing the face of God and you have accepted me. Please accept my blessing that is brought to you because God has dealt graciously with me and because I have enough. Thus he urged him and he took it. Now what we see here we have this tremendous emotional weeping experience where everyone's hugging and kissing and it's just a wonderful time and then we have to bring tension into this wonderful experience. So the joy of reconciliation is immediately replaced with a subtle struggle between the brothers. And this tension its easy to miss, but it occurs on several levels. So, the first tension is caused by Jacob's insistence that Esau receive the gift offered. So here's what's going on. Jacob doesn't really want to blow or ruin the affection of the moment. But he also wants a formal, a, can I even say, legal statement that he is accepted and forgiven. You see, if Esau accepts the gift offered, it is... It, this gift is given as a, as a um, appeasement, as a, a gift, not just a gift in giving, but a, a statement. I'm sorry for what i am done. By you accepting this gift, you are declaring that you have uh, relieved me of all debts upon me. Like, there's, there's, the forgiveness is complete. It's a formal forgiveness. Now, you can imagine you've had an emotional statement of forgiveness. And then Jacob turns around and says, yeah, but I still want it in writing. Do you understand how that's adding to the tension? What? I told you I forgave you. No, 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 I I want it in writing. Right? Jacob wants it done that Esau will, will never again have a claim upon him. I could just hear Esau, almost the offense. Why do you need that? I've already told you that I forgave you. I've wept, I've kissed you, I've hugged you. But Jacob persists. If I have found favor in your sight, then let's formally put your words into writing. Not only does this this receiving of the gift make it, it's formal and binding that Esau has forgiven Jacob for any wrongs that he's done to him. But it also sets the stage for who blesses who. You see, in the promise that God gave to Jacob, he said, you, Jacob, will be a blessing to everyone else. So, just as Jacob did not want to receive a gift from Laban, he does not only not want to receive a gift from Esau, he wants to be in the position that he is being blessed and that blessing is flowing to others. Now, I don't know if this is a parallel, but you know, most of my life, even into my adult life, if I went out to eat with my mom and dad, they footed the bill. That first time where I said, Mom and Dad, I'll, I'll foot the bill. It's just a little bit awkward. Kind of a transition, right? Like, am I, am I my own person now? Can I pay for them rather than them pay for me? Um, it's still a little bit awkward. My parents still want to pay the bills all the time. So, <clears throat> But Jacob wants it clear. It's not just one way. You're not blessing me, Esau. I, because I've been blessed by God, am blessing you. Jacob wins this little struggle. Esau receives the gift, acknowledges that Jacob is blessing him, and that stage is done. But it sets the stage for another struggle, and that's in verses 12 through 17. Then Esau said, Let us journey on our way, and I will go ahead of you. Catch that. Esau says, Hey, we're buddies. We're forgiven, you've blessed me, I've received the gift. We should want to go be together, because we are reconciled. Jacob said to him, My Lord knows that the children are frail, and that the nursing flocks and herds are a care to me. If they are driven hard for one day, all the flocks will die. Let my Lord pass on ahead of his servant, and I will lead on slowly at the pace of the livestock that are ahead of me, and at the pace of the children until I come to my Lord in Seir. So Esau said, let me leave with you some of the people who are with me. But Jacob said, what need is there? Let me find favor in the sight of my Lord. So Esau returned that day on his way to Seir, and, but Jacob journeyed to Succoth, built himself a house and made booths for the livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. So everything is going well. Jacob's reconciled. He's got the formal agreement of forgiveness and peace. He's positioned himself as the giver of blessing. But with all of these accomplishments, now Jacob feels obligated to return with Esau to his home. Now, this may not seem like much of a danger, God surely doesn't, Esau doesn't want him to live there forever. But remember, how long did Jacob get stuck in Potiphar's and Aram when he worked for Rachel and Leah? 20 years. So, what could be turned into a nice, just, you know, let's just come stay with us for a little while could very quickly become another 20 years. Jacob doesn't want this to happen. He's intent on getting back to the land. But he doesn't want to jeopardize everything that he's already established. He's going to lose it all. Offend his newfound brother. And I think Jacob, to me, seems like he's kind of sputtering a little bit. He's, he's, now, we're in the south, and this happens more in the south than in the north. But if somebody gives you an invitation that you don't really want to take, it's hard to just say, no, I don't think so. Right? Well, I, I've got this. I've got another excuse. I got things I got to, you know, whatever. And so we have these excuses. And so Jacob is trying to get off easy without just saying, "Look, Esau, I'm not going to where you are." <clears throat> it's funny he blames his family. Who's the one living with a limp? I mean, they've just been running from, from Laban. Their family travels pretty nicely. Esau says, typical, you know, you know, that, "Oh, I, Esau can't really call Jacobs Bluff, so he offers to try to overcome, "Oh, you want to come more slowly at your pace? Well, let me leave some of my army as an escort for you." See now if 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 Esau does this then Jacob is obligated to go with him. And he knows that. Jacob says, "Oh no no no, don't do that. We'll we'll come at our own pace to Seir." And it does, Jacob never outright says, "Hey buddy, we're not coming." But I think that Esau gets it. This is kind of like in in polite society, you don't actually say exactly what you mean, but everybody gets it. Okay, you really don't want to come. And so they both part their own ways. They're on good terms, but they're not on not going to live together kind of terms. Esau returns home to Seir, and Jacob goes to Succoth. And you have to understand, Succoth is just right on the eastern border of the Jordan River just before you would go into the promised land. And we're a little bit surprised because, because Jacob builds a house there and makes, makes uh, booths for his animals. And you're like, wait a minute, Jacob, what are you doing living on this side of the Jordan? you ought got to get in. You're 99% of the way there now. Why not just go in? And so if you're reading this text and you're understanding it, you're like, is this another hiccup? Is he not going to go into the promised land but it's a short-lived one. Because the next verse, we don't know how long he stays in Succoth, but the next verse, he's in to the promised land. Verse 18. And Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in, which is in the land of Canaan, on his way from Paddan Aram. You understand, right there, he's taken Canaan, Paddan Aram. That's where Laban lived. So he's, he's basically saying those are the two points of this journey. Starting over there with Laban, now I'm finally back in the, in the promised land. And he camped before the city. And the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he, uh, and from the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, he bought a, for a hundred pieces of money the piece of land in which he had pitched his tent. And he erected an altar and called it El Elohi Israel. This is the climactic moment. You probably didn't know that as you read through this chapter, but this is it right here. We are all to breathe a sigh of relief. Jacob's not finished with his life, but what has fully been accomplished? God has kept his promise to Jacob. Closure. I find it interesting that Jacob is living in a tent. On the other side of the Jordan, he had no problem building a house. must be less inhabited. But on this side of the Jordan, it's already inhabited, so he builds a tent. He's he's living there. He has to buy just a small portion of land, but it doesn't matter because this small piece of land is a sign that God has fulfilled his promise to him. And he pitches a tent, and he builds an altar, and he calls the altar El Elohi Israel. And translated that simply means God, the God of Israel. How do we understand this moment? How do we understand this statement? The God The God of Israel. And Israel here is Jacob. Remember, he's just had his name changed, so it could have easily been God, the God of Jacob. All right, it's a personal thing going on. So I think there's two ways for you and I as Christians to try to apply this text to us. The first is a personal application. You apply a text like this personally when you, as an individual, come to the place where you believe that you personally have been loved by Jesus Christ. And you embrace Jesus Christ in repentance and faith and call him your own God. You have a personal relationship with God. God is not just a God out there. He's not just a God to the Christians, he is my God. Can you say that to yourself? Is that the way you think of God? That he is my God. He has proven himself to be faithful to me and therefore I will call upon him as my God. Now you may not have, uh, I I didn't tip Dan off in reading the text today, but in Deuteronomy chapter 5, there are five times in that short passage where God says to his people, I am the Lord, your God. It's a personal thing. But we can also apply this passage corporately. You see, God has attached Himself to Israel. And anyone, anyone who can rightly be included in Israel has a right to call upon God as their God. And this is why it's so important for us today to understand that the church is not some new entity. The church is actually the Israel of God. That's who the church is. Galatians 6, 15 and 16. Neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And as for all who walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, upon the Israel of God. John 1, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, Not who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. As Christians, we're not a new people, like God cast off Israel and now he started again with, with Christianity or Christians. We belong to the one people of God, whom God is forever being faithful to redeem. Listen to King David as he talks about Israel. Who is like your people Israel? The one nation on earth whom God went to redeem to be his people making himself a name and doing for them great and awesome things by driving out before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, a nation and its gods. And you established for yourself your people, Israel, to be your people forever. And you, O Lord, became their God. It's not by accident that when Peter starts talking to the church of God, he uses Old Testament language, 1 Peter 2. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now why is this important? Why is this corporate Identity with Israel, so important to us. Just as God has been faithful to Jacob, he is being faithful to you. Now, his most profound act of faithfulness is in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of God's promises all the way back in Genesis to crush the head of Satan so that his people could be redeemed. And so you can look at the entire Old Testament as one big period in which God says, I make a promise and I fulfill it in Christ. Now see, as you look at your lives, I hope that every one of you can see ways in which God has been faithful to you. That he has been faithful to walk with you. But see, you're still in the middle of your journey. You're not at the end yet. So sometimes you can look at God's providential care and you can, it doesn't always look like he's gonna get you all the way. Well, what you can do is you can look in the Old Testament at how God was faithful to go from the beginning to the end in giving Jacob this promise and fulfilling it and completing it. That can give you encouragement that you belong to the same God of that promise. Also, this understanding... Places the necessity and importance of obedience and holiness in its proper place. We do not obey God to gain his favor. We have been given his favor in Christ, and therefore, because we belong to God and have his favor, we obey Christ. This is not just something that's a New Testament thing. At the beginning of the Ten Commandments, God says, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of slavery, out of the house of Egypt. Therefore, obey me. Leviticus 20. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am the Lord your God. You don't make yourself holy in order to to become gods. He has made you his own, and therefore you live out. A life of holiness. And so, my question to us today is do you place your ongoing struggle to obey and be holy in the context of belonging to God? Are you living in union with him, trusting that he is actually not just out there saying, if you get it all right, you can come be with me, but he has come alongside you and he is with you and he's striving together with you to make you holy. No, I get it. We have a responsibility to abide in his love. John 15, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. I get it that God can even take those who are in the visible church and can cut them off if they refuse to want to follow Him. I get those things. We should never be presumptuous, thinking we can live any way we want, and God will accept us. But I think we also, as true believers, who are truly trying to walk with God, have another struggle. And that is to really believe that God is not ashamed to call you his own. I mean, don't you in your heart say, man, if God, if he only knew everything about me, he would never want to be with me. Let Jacob be a reminder to you It was not what Jacob did that earned him the right to say, El Elohi Israel. It was God's faithfulness to Jacob. It was his steadfast love. And Jacob is is looking at and recognizing the tremendous love that God has for him. And therefore that is moving him to love and obey in return. Now Jacob's life is not over. There is still more to come. Ultimately, even beyond Genesis, Jacob is still waiting. He's awaiting for the resurrection. He's waiting for the day when only together with all who are called Israel will be raised together. And do you know what we're going to do when we see the entirety of all the redeemed together? We are not going to say... Wow, look, Benji, I'm so glad at what you did, and Hope what you did, and John what you did. We're all going to sit back and just declare the faithfulness of God to take from his promise and bring us all to the, to the end of that, to the full closure. We're going to say praise the Lord for his faithfulness and his righteousness and his holiness to bring us all the way. And that's why you call upon God. It's El Elohi Israel, because that's who you serve. Amen.